Hey everyone, welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Stefan Coons, here surviving another week of the COVID-19 pandemic. This week on the show, I talked to a friend of mine who is a nurse working down in Florida on the front lines of the COVID pandemic, and I talked to my dad who works at a research facility up in Massachusetts. And at the very end of the show, I will play one of my favorite songs by the band Mandolin Orange, so stay tuned for that. Before we get into those conversations, a few news updates. We have passed 500,000 cases here as of the second week of April. Uh, In the first week of April, we passed 400,000, and now we're quickly over 500,000 here in the United States. Hopefully, uh, the number of new cases will start to go down, as we're seeing in some places like New York City, that were kind of the epicenter of this outbreak. They still are having new cases, of course, reported every day, but some of those numbers are starting to decline. Despite that decline, we are seeing an increase in the number of deaths related to COVID each day. As I've said earlier, there's kind of a lag between the number of new cases and the number of deaths as it takes people a few days or weeks to get sick and then come down with a bad case of this virus, bad enough that they have to be hospitalized and then ultimately lose their life to this virus. We've now seen the CDC change their guidelines as far as wearing masks in public. The CDC wants us to wear cloth face coverings. They do not want us to go out and buy up all the medical grade masks that our healthcare workers need. So we're supposed to be making our own homemade masks out of whatever we can find around the house. There are some videos on the internet of how to make them. Uh, And the idea there is that you may be carrying the virus and you may not know it. A lot of people are what we call asymptomatic. They have the virus, but they're not showing symptoms of it. And so if they're going out in public and they're breathing on people, they're breathing on things, um, by simply wearing a mask, you could cut down on the amount of particles and spit and stuff coming out of your mouth as you talk. So it's really, it's not about keeping yourself safe from others. It's about keeping others safe from yourself. Before we get into our first conversation, let's hear from one of our sponsors. This podcast is brought to you by Pajamas. Are you the type of person who dreads getting ready in the morning? Perhaps you prefer the feeling of nice, soft sweatpants as opposed to blue jeans. Maybe you'd rather wear a hoodie all day than a dress shirt. Well, I have good news for you. For the next few weeks and perhaps months, you can wear pajamas all day and feel no shame about it. In fact, many would consider you a hero for staying home, lounging around, and helping prevent the potential community spread of COVID-19. Pajamas, 2020's hero attire. Our first guest is a nurse living and working down in Florida. She has felt the effects of COVID-19 both in her community and as she goes to work in a hospital. Hello? Hey. Hi. Thanks for being on the show. Of course. Sorry for the uh, technical difficulties a minute ago. No, that's okay. Um, So I understand you're a nurse in Florida. That's right. So on a day-to-day basis, what does your usual day look like? I know we're going to get into COVID-19 here in a minute, but just your usual day. Yeah, so I work on an inpatient uh, med surge floor. Med surge stands for medical surgical. So the patients that I treat are hospitalized inpatient, and they're acutely ill patients who aren't critically ill. So these are patients who have just come out of surgery or maybe they were newly diagnosed with diabetes who require IV drips or um, wound dressings, things of that nature. So what my day-to-day looks like is um, passing medications, doing head-to-toe assessments, um, chatting with patients about their pain, their needs, their concerns, anything that I can relay to the primary treatment team to help advocate for the patient and provide better care. Wow, I bet you have some pretty full days on your hands, sounds like. 
Yep, they're 12-hour shifts, and they are very long days sometimes. Wow. So I imagine that COVID-19 has changed sort of what your hospital feels like, what what your day-to-day looks like now. How is how is it different? Yeah, it, it absolutely has. Um, in small ways and in big ways. First of all, when I enter the hospital now, everyone has to go through a screening. Um, if you're not an employee wearing a hospital badge, um, they take your temperature. Only one patient... Each patient is allowed only one visitor at a time, and they'll put a wristband on you once you're cleared. Um, it's also changed some of the hospital standards about how we use personal protective equipment. Um, they're a lot more strict as well about uh limiting people coming into work if you have any signs or symptoms. Um, so they're broad sweeping ways that it has changed. Okay. So are there measures you take on a like at a, on a usual shift to try to keep you, yourself safe? Uh, yeah, hand washing is number one. I can't stress that enough um, how important important hand washing is. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as measures that we take, all nurses practice what's called universal precautions, which is wearing gloves when we are in contact with patients, wearing PPE when there's any suspicion of infectious disease, um, practicing distancing from one another, that sort of thing. Okay. And when you say PPE, that is personal protective? Yeah, I'm I'm sorry, I should have clarified. Personal protective equipment is called PPE in the hospital. And what it is is a physical barrier between a provider and a patient that prevents the transmission of any infectious material. So that can include anything from gloves to masks. We have um, disposable gowns that we sometimes put on when we go into a patient's room. They're paper gowns that we wear in a patient's room when they have certain types of infections that we can rip off and dispose of in their garbage can uh, before we leave their room. And that way, if if we contact their bed or anything that might um, have infectious material on it, we're not then tracking it into other patients' rooms. It stays on the gown and the gown stays in their room. Okay. And I I learned recently that those, those particles, we refer to them as fomites. Is that correct? Um, Yes, yeah, so that refers to um, surfaces that can maintain infectious material. So different types of diseases, viruses, bacteria can live on certain surfaces for varying numbers of, or excuse me, for various amounts of time. Mm-hmm. Um, so when people talk about fomites, that that's what they're talking about is infectious disease that's living on a, a non-organic surface. Okay, I got you. Mm-hmm. Um so you've been on the front lines now for a little while. What more do you feel like we need to be doing at maybe a local or state level? And then we'll we'll get into national level here in a minute. Sure. I, I think the best thing that we can do as individuals is follow state official guidelines, um, practice social distancing, wash your hands, wash your hands, wash your hands. I can't stress that enough. Um, also, I would say if if you're an individual who isn't part of a high-risk population, meaning you don't have pre-existing health conditions, um, you're young, you're healthy, try to avoid wearing a mask. Um, In an ideal circumstance, we would all wear masks because it would help prevent the spread, but because there is a shortage, um, be mindful of how you're using resources. Okay. So I Mm -hmm. I shouldn't be buying pallets of toilet paper either? 
No. Again, be mindful of how you're using resources. You know, in an ideal world, there'd be enough for everyone to wear a mask, for everyone to have loads of toilet paper. But unfortunately, that's not the reality. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we have to sort of prioritize and think about who's most important and who's most vulnerable and who needs those resources the most. Okay. What about like nationally? Are there things you, you feel like the federal government could be doing differently? Things we're doing well? You know, that's tough to say. I think the most important thing that the government can be doing, two things. First is promoting education about how to prevent the spread of this disease, as well as education um, about signs and symptoms, when to see the doctor and when not to see a doctor, because you could potentially have COVID but not need to go to the hospital. Um, The second thing I think the government should be doing is preventing hysteria. I mean, this is a very scary time, um, but the best way that we can handle this is to handle ourselves calmly and in a rational, reasonable manner, not hoarding toilet paper and not hoarding resources, um, helping each other out, um, providing our own resources to others in need when we can. Okay. Um, I know my audience maybe does not have an extensive knowledge of how our healthcare providers operate or just any of this stuff in general. What would you tell lay people or ordinary Americans who who don't have that knowledge? What do they need to know right now? With respect to, can you be a little more specific? Maybe like what, what you're doing on your end. Maybe people feel like, you know, healthcare providers need to be, need to be doing more, or maybe they're putting themselves at risk. Like what, what do we need to Um, know about your end? I think what I'm about to say extends beyond this COVID epidemic. And it's just a message more broadly speaking, but I think people tend to forget that healthcare providers are people too, and we have families, and we get stressed and burnt out just like everyone else. So as scary as this is for everyone, please be patient. Please do your part. (laughs) Please be understanding when you do seek out a healthcare provider. Just understand that we're trying our very, very best. Yeah, I know um, I was in the uh, birthing center last week for three nights working alongside nurses and and whatnot and I was amazed at how just how accommodating how kind how helpful they were even me I wasn't the one giving birth I was just there uh, but even you know they were attentive to my needs as well as my wife so that was it's truly amazing uh, to see see what y'all do on a day-to-day basis yeah and as a nurse I understand that you're in the hospital because you're sick and you're hurting and you don't feel well and you know you're seeing people when they're at their most vulnerable um, and so patience is a huge, huge quality to have. Um, and it's very much appreciated when I get a please or a thank you or, you know, hey, you're doing a good job because it, it, it's emotionally and physically draining. Sure. I love what I do. Um, and it's it's just nice to to feel validated sometimes. Absolutely. Um, so you're you're down in Florida. Mm-hmm. How do you see COVID-19 impacting your broader community? So like outside your hospital, what are you seeing on a in your neighborhood or grocery stores that's a great question um you know it's going to have huge sweeping impacts on the economy on job demand on all sorts of things um as a healthcare provider one of the impacts i foresee it having is public awareness um you know the hiv aids epidemic in the 80s is very different but i i feel that there perhaps some analogies insofar that that epidemic um led to a lot of education and awareness and cultural change as it relates to sexual health and practicing safe sex. Um, And in that same respect, um, I I hope at least that 
this pandemic, as awful as it is, will lead people to have a better understanding about how to keep others safe, how to prevent the transmission of disease, the importance of getting a flu vaccine, the importance of, you know, doing your duty to stay home when you're not feeling well. Um, I hope that there is somewhat of a cultural shift as far as um, promoting public health and and understanding of infectious disease. Yeah, because that was kind of my last question was the the lasting impacts, like years from now, you know, are we still going to be practicing social distancing? Do you think you know, online, like, uh, what do they call tele appointments, appointments with your doctor? Yeah. Over, are those things going to stay stick around for a while? You think? Well, you know, what, what you just said made me think of in, in China, um, culturally, when someone's sick, they wear a mask, and it's not stigmatized or anything. Mm-hmm. And here in the United States, if prior to this epidemic, if you saw someone wearing a mask in a grocery store in an airport, the automatic assumption is that they're sick or there's something wrong with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm hoping that one of the good things that'll come out of this whole crisis is that people will have a fundamental shift or change their views on on how we look at spreading disease. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Just to yeah. collectively take it more seriously and right. keep these things in and, mind. And, have a bit more of a sense of personal duty to mm-hmm. um, keeping everyone else healthy. Right, like not partying on the beaches of Florida for spring break. Yeah, despite <laughs> right, or or taking flu vaccines a little more seriously. Yeah, um, you know, understanding the importance of herd immunity, which I, I don't know if you're familiar with that term. No, um, walk walk us through that. Sure. So herd immunity is. Um, when most people are immune to a disease, the rate of transmission goes way down. And there are people um, who cannot, for medical reasons, get vaccinated. And so if you are a healthy person who can get a vaccine, it's your duty to do so so that you don't then infect someone who could potentially get that disease and not just get it, but get very sick from it. so you're not just protecting yourself with a vaccine. You're right. Protecting. You're getting the vaccine to protect other people who are who are sick. Right. Okay, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so, is there anything else? Any parting words of wisdom you feel like you need to share with my audience? I'd say just stay calm and wash your hands. I I think that's great advice. I think that's what we need to be doing right now. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you for taking your time out of your day to talk to us, and I hope your next yeah. next 12-hour shift goes well. Well, thank you, and thank you for the opportunity to yeah. let me chat on your show. <laughs> All right. You take care. Bye. Bye. Before we hear from our next caller, let's hear from one more of our sponsors. This podcast is brought to you by Reasonable Shopping. Have you recently seen people hoarding household items like toilet paper and Clorox wipes? Well, let's make sure there's enough of those things to go around by shopping reasonably. Last time I checked, toilet paper manufacturers were no more likely to be negatively affected during this pandemic than other businesses. So let's ease the pressure on them and purchase toilet paper like reasonable people, not doomsday preppers who plan on eating nothing but reheated Chipotle for the next month. Reasonable shopping. Your behind will be just fine. Our final caller on the show is my dad. Unfortunately, during the beginning of our conversation, I had some technical difficulties. My recording software kept cutting out. Um, So rather than play the snippets of the interview, I'll just kind of cut it and paraphrase what my dad was talking about. Um, He was discussing some of the things his his work is dealing with um, associated with COVID. Hello. Hey, Dad. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, how you doing? I'm good. How are you? 
I'm doing okay. Are you surviving COVID-19 all right? Uh, yeah, yeah. Watching a lot of news, but uh, we're surviving it okay. Okay. So I wanted to bring you on the podcast so I could get your your expertise. Um, could you you tell my students and my my broad audience what you do for a living? Uh, sure. You know, I I work at a a, a laboratory. Uh, that's part of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. It's called Lincoln Laboratory. It's a federally funded research and development center that does contract work largely for you know defense and security applications and we do lots of different things there and uh, uh, my, my role there is I, I lead a group that focuses on chemical and biological applications to national security so you might imagine we you know a lot of my colleagues have been pretty busy as a result of what's been going on recently I can imagine do you have like entire groups that are dedicated to dealing with this issue uh, yeah, it's sort of ad hoc. The, the expertise that, that we've been called upon has really spanned a number of different disciplines, so it's not a, a one specific group, but rather sort of an ad hoc group of people that have been responded to uh, to this recent crisis. And, you know, and as an organization like ours that, that exists to support uh, security uh, and, and the federal government, uh, you know, it's, it's not surprising that a number of different government agencies have contacted us from federal to state and even local uh, to try to um, seek guidance uh, where where uh, expertise is needed. Okay. So overall, how would you say COVID has impacted your work? Are you are you working from home? Are you going in at all? Yeah. Well, so the lab as a whole, uh, where, where I work, uh, a lot of the work is, is is transition from home, so they're certainly encouraging people to work from home. That's the most effective way to socially distance. Uh, I think right now we're sort of 80, 90 percent of the people are working from home. That's out of 4,000 people who work there. Uh, you know, we've gotten really good at using all the different apps I'm sure a lot of people are using to do conferencing and like Zoom and, and Skype for Business and WebEx and all those kinds of things. Uh, but there, but because of the critical work that we do, you know, we have been named by the um, Massachusetts government. Uh, we're part of the quote defense industrial base, which means we do essential work. Uh, so uh, there is a skeleton crew of people going in there, which, which for places the size of ours, is still a few hundred people every day that are going in uh, to do um, aspects of work that are felt to be critical, either in response to this crisis or other other uh, part of the of the. Uh, security enterprise that the lab's involved with. Okay. Um, are there new projects or challenges that you can share with us that you know some of your colleagues have been working on? Uh, there's actually quite a, yeah, there's quite a bit. Uh, I don't know how much I can, I can share, um, but some of the kinds of things that, that have been spun up, something, this is actually very, very simple, is that uh, the local Boston hospitals, which a lot of the uh, molecular biologists that I work with uh, have close relationships with the research staff at the, at the big Boston research hospitals, uh, are helping even with simple things like uh, what's the best way to reuse a mask. Uh, I know there have been several things that have been in the news. The FDA has recently approved this process. Unfortunately, my recording software cut out here, but some of the other projects in the works included contact tracing apps, which are apps on your phone that track your location that you could um, report to the app if you've been tested or if you're sick, and then the app could kind of keep track of people and where they go, and if they come in contact with other healthy people, the healthy people could be notified uh, that they've come into contact with a sick person. But of course, these apps have all kinds of privacy issues, as we've seen other countries like South Korea and China 
um, that don't really shy away from violating their citizens' privacy here in the United States, we would be a little more cautious about how to implement such an app. Uh, although it could be very useful for tracking sick people and tracking the disease, uh, we also don't want to violate you know, Americans' privacy. So we're trying to figure out this balance between how could we track the disease but do it in an anonymous way that didn't, uh, didn't make people feel like their privacy was being violated. Uh, and then one of the last projects he mentioned um, were really high-end thermal cameras that could be used to uh, detect fevers, like in airports or train stations. People that are running a, a fever could simply be identified by the uh, security camera, and then from there could go on to get tested or whatnot. What is your take on the CDC now telling us that we should be wearing masks when we go out? Is that a definitely something we should all be doing? Yeah, actually, this it's pretty funny. So. We've, we've before the CDC even made this announcement, we had quite an argument amongst ourselves about whether this was the right thing to do. Uh, and I actually personally did look at some of the scientific literature that was published after the, I think it was the 2009 uh, H1N1 influenza uh, epidemic, mm -hmm. uh, where a lot of work was done about uh, the effectiveness of improvised masks. And so, the, and, and the two sides of the debate that we were having uh, amongst my colleagues is that you know, an improvised mask is not an N95 mask. It does not stop particles from getting in 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 your lungs. So it, it's it's if you were a, a nurse, you know, doing an intubation, uh, it would not protect you from from getting sick. And so that's the criticism for like we shouldn't wear wear masks. And if you remember, uh, the Surgeon General uh, even came out and said it makes it worse if you wear a mask. It gives you a false sense of uh, safety, mm -hmm. and we should save all the good quality masks for healthcare workers. But I actually thought that was completely wrong because uh, I read some papers that said the re main reason you should wear a mask, and this is actually one of the main reasons why people wear them in Asia, uh, is not to protect you from getting sick. It's because there's many asymptomatic spreaders of of COVID-19, and so if I'm spreading it and I don't know it. If I wear a mask, then the masks are quite effective because the particles are the biggest when they first come out of your mouth. Mm -hmm. So they're the, they're the easiest to filter right when they come out of your mouth. But once they float in the air, the evaporates, and they get small enough so they go through the mask. Oh, no. And the way to filter them is right when they come out of your mouth. And this has all been published. And even if they're only 50% effective, uh, what that does to the, to the spread of the epidemic is huge. Because you just, like, if, imagine if everybody on the bus is wearing these things, there might still be some, some infectious particles in the air, but it's so much lower, the likelihood that people on that bus get sick goes way down. And because epidemic spreading is exponential, uh, the math is, is hugely nonlinear, and you end up with a pretty big effect, even from a minor, minor uh, effect on the quality of the mask. And so my own personal opinion is that when they go back and do a... Uh, after action report to determine what we did right and what we did wrong. The fact that they didn't have everybody wearing makeshift masks and coming out with guidelines uh, as to how to make your own masks is going to be one of the biggest failures of our government. Okay. That, and in fact, I just read in a journal today uh, that, I, that I often um, subscribe to uh, was an analysis of uh, what types of fabrics around your home make the best filters. So, so uh, my wife, Kirsten, actually made homemade masks uh, and what she did was she had two layers and she put a vacuum cleaner HEPA filter which the HEPA filter is a high efficiency particle filter uh, in between the two layers and then made it snug enough so air couldn't leak around the side of the mask so 
So it's actually, it looks like it's a homemade thing, but it's actually pretty high tech. And I bet if, it, if the CDC had issued guidelines uh, to make masks like this early on, like back in February or early March, mm-hmm. uh, seen a much lower R0, which is the, 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 the number of people each sick person infects. Uh, and that basically determines how nonlinear the epidemic spread is. Uh, and I bet the R zero would have been noticeably lower, and we probably would have had far fewer sick people today if the CDC had issued that guidance early on for everybody to wear masks. Right. Uh, and so I, I think that in hindsight, that's going to be a big failure. Okay. So. so we should all we should all be wearing masks now. Uh, I think so. Yeah. Uh, that's my opinion, and, and I think the science supports it. They're, they're, and again, they're not perfect, and they won't protect you if somebody sneezes in your face. You'll sure. still get sick. Uh, but but it has a partial effect, which, again, integrated over all the people in society, has a very large collective value. Right. Even if the value to one individual person is fairly mo- modest. Okay. Um, so you're, you're up in Massachusetts now. Obviously, I'm down in North Carolina. I'm curious what life is like up there right now. Um, is it, are the streets barren? Does it feel weird? Yeah. Yeah. So the governor, governor of Massachusetts, uh, didn't put us, uh, uh, rule out that, that we should only be out for essential purposes, which means going to the grocery store and going to the pharmacy. Uh, it's not a strict order like martial law where you're, you know, you're, you're given a ticket if you leave your home. Uh, so I, a couple of times I did have to go into work cause I had some essential things I had to deal with in the lab. Uh, and, uh, <clears throat> the traffic was pretty light. It was a pretty easy commute. Sort of reminded me about the level of traffic between Christmas and New Year's. If anybody chooses to make a commute into a big city uh, during that time, of course, the public schools are all out and most people are on vacation and the traffic's usually pretty light, but there's still, you know, a noticeable number of cars out. And that's sort of the way it reminded me of is sort of commuting between Christmas and New Year's. Uh, the other thing is that uh, because people are at home, everybody's walking around the neighborhood. And so yeah. everybody's walking their dogs, and I've got these little dogs that bark when they see dogs in the street mm-hmm. and everybody's out walking their dogs so it seems like every 20 minutes another dog goes down the street and our dogs start barking so <laughs> that's no that normally doesn't happen when everybody's at work right <laughs> um so is there anything else you feel like um my students or my audience should know for the pandemic right now like what should we think be thinking about over the next few weeks um is there is there going to be a light at the end of the tunnel? Those sorts of things. Yeah, so uh, you have a cu- couple of comments. First, if you do choose to watch the news, the one person you should listen to is Anthony Fauci. Uh, he is the director of the National Institute for uh, Allergies and Infectious Diseases, which is part of the NIH, which is the National Institute of Health. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've, been, I've listened to several of the press conferences, and I, there's a lot of people on uh, President Trump's task force. And then they're all doing their best, but Fauci's the smart guy in the room. He's the guy you want to listen to. Okay. So that, that, that's tip number one. And you can just ignore everybody else. Just listen to Fauci. You'll be okay. <laughs> okay. And, and the se- second thing is that science does work. And, 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 and this is something that, that Fauci keeps saying, is that, that the induction time for, to, for people to get sick and then people to get sick enough to go to the hospital and people to get get. Uh, so sick then that they have to be put in intensive care on a ventilator, and then even unfortunately some of them pass away. That process takes weeks. Mm-hmm. And so even though we've been practicing social isolation, social distancing uh, for a number of weeks now, and then the statistics are still going up, it doesn't mean it's not working. We have to believe the science works. 
and do what we're being told. The government really is is making decisions based on research and 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 the understanding of, of infectious disease spread, uh, and that if we stick with this long enough, we absolutely will see a bend in the curve. And, and the hope is uh, that, and this is the other piece of thing to keep an eye on, is uh, that uh, therapies and better ther- uh, diagnostic tests will will become available. Uh, one, one thing that will be coming out that you should keep in mind is what's, a, what's called a serological test. And what a serological test means, and that just means you're testing your blood instead of your mucus. Uh, and what you're testing for in the blood is not the presence of the COVID virus itself, but you're measuring the, the presence of the body's response to it in the form of an antibody. And that test uh, will actually have tests for two antibodies, two different immunoglobulins, uh, one which uh, for, forms very quickly when the virus first gets in the body, and then one which is the antibody that gives you long-term immunity. And so it tests for both of those. And so that will tell you if, if you've been sick and if you've been sick how recently and whether you're immune, and it will be a very, very useful test when that comes out. And that's already being tested. Uh, it's, uh, it's available in a few other countries at this point, and, but I think that will be big news when that comes out. Uh, because then if you think you had a flu and you're never tested for COVID, you could go get this antibody. And these are like pregnancy tests. You just take them home, you prick your finger with a bit of blood, and you put it, it's called a lateral flow immunoassay, uh, and you write it in your home just like, you know, checking for pregnancy. You're checking if you're a diabetic, checking right. blood sugar, something, something that simple, and you'll know whether you're immune. So that will be key. And so um, the hope there is that a lot of people have had it and they didn't know it, and now they should be immune, at least in theory? Yeah, yeah, there was a study that came out of China uh, uh, from their early experience in, in Wuhan that, that uh, some epidemiologists, and those are people that study the, the, the spread of disease, uh, and they're very, very sophisticated mathematical models. In fact, there's some pretty cool interactive ones that are available on the Internet. Uh, so when you see the rate of the number of, in, of, of cases increase, uh, uh, like each day it increases by 20 or 30 percent or something, that's through the exponential growth. Uh, and if you know how people interact, uh, you can actually extract uh, important information from, from those growth curves. And what they concluded in the Chinese study is that for it to spread as fast as it spread, that for every one person who had symptoms, there must have been seven who were, who were spreaders and didn't know it. That basically means 85% of the people were asymptomatic spreaders which means either they had a mild case and didn't know it or they were going to come down with it but didn't know it yet. Uh, so what that means is uh, that there could be, you know, here in the U.S., for every COVID patient that, that reports, there could be five to ten times that many other people spreading it. Wow. Uh, and that's another reason why we should all be wearing masks, because if all those people were wearing masks, they would not spread it quite, a, quite as um, effectively. Easily, yeah. Yeah. And then the other big thing to keep an eye on is, is when medications are going to be ready. The first, the first round of medication that will be ready will be an antiviral therapy. And what an antiviral therapy is, is, is it doesn't cure it, uh, and, and nor is it a vaccine, uh, but it's something you take while you're sick or just before you get sick. And, and what the, the, uh, the drug does is it interacts with the, with the molecular machinery the virus needs to use to uh, reproduce in your body. Uh, and it just gums it up. Uh, I know I, it doesn't stop the virus necessarily, but it can slow it down enough where your immune system can wipe it out before uh, the virus can cause uh, grave damage to your own body. Okay. And so you've heard a lot of stuff of, of uh, uh, chloro, 
hydrochloroquinone and hydrochloroquinone, and Trump's been you know, talking a lot about that. And there was a, a small a limited trial in France, which was recently published. Uh, there are several clinical trials going on now. It's off-label. The drug is approved for treating malaria. Uh, so it's, there's millions of doses available in the U.S. It's also used for treating lupus. Uh, and so some people think that that will have some ability to slow down the advance of the disease for people who are gravely ill. But I think that you'll see more of these types of drugs coming available, off-label drugs, things that are already used for other purposes that, that just just slow it down. Right. Uh, it won't stop it. But it's all you want to do is like, if you ever watch a movie where there's like a bad guy chasing the, the good guy, and the good guy's like throwing chairs and knocking over shells and doing everything they can to slow down the bad guy, mm-hmm. that's sort of what these, uh, these, uh, these antiviral therapies do at the molecular scale. You're just you know, throwing stuff in the path of, of, of the uh, protein in the machinery that the, the COVID uses to, to, to infect you. Uh, and then ultimately the vaccine will come out, and that will come out. But, uh, you know, if, if you've been reading the news, you know, it's it sort of 12 time. to 18 months. Yeah. And that's going to take some time. But in the end, you know, like looking, you know, 10 years from now, it may well be that uh, you get a seasonal influenza vaccine and you get a seasonal coronavirus vaccine. Uh, and, you know, and, and it, like influenza, it's something that if you get caught by surprise or you're a vulnerable population and you haven't been vaccinated, it can be bad, but it won't spread uh, uh, with the same consequences that this spread. So this is sort of a wake-up call for uh, for rethinking how we prepare these sorts of things. And I think that there'll be a lot of lessons from this. This will be studied for years and years from now until we figure out how to how to better uh, prepare for these kinds of events. Absolutely. Yeah, that was part of my motivation for the podcast was just to try to create something to document, um, you know, living through this historic event. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I actually have, uh, I had a great aunt whose fiance died from the uh, 1918 pandemic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I remember that was, that's my, you know, I'm old enough to remember people who survived that. Uh, she never got remarried. She still had the engagement ring uh, uh-huh. from the guy who died. He was, a, he was a soldier in the First World War and he shipped off to Europe and died of the influenza while he was serving. It wasn't, wasn't the battle combat that got him. It was the illness. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I remember that. And, and and also, I remember my my parents even you know lived through uh, and grandparents lived through the depression and lived through Pearl Harbor, uh, and so these sorts of disruptive events that that changed the whole society for a few years were something that I heard about growing up. And I think that you know people that are younger, that are people your age, this is seems a little more novel because that hasn't really happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, but these sorts of disruptive events you know, occur all throughout history, and and. Uh, one of the things that we look at where I work, getting back to your first question about what we do at work, is this, this concept of a resilient society. Uh, you know, it's a matter of national security. You know, a resilient society is a society that can withstand pandemics. It can adapt to climate change. Uh, it can, it can uh, recognize food shortages when they're coming and find creative ways of producing healthy food for its population. So all the kinds of things that historically have disrupted or even wiped out whole societies, a resilient society has prepared for and can endure all kinds of these challenges. And that's becoming one of the big national security focuses as we go forward, is, uh, as, because when these events occur, it disrupts the economy, it causes human migrations, the human migrations can lead to other conflicts, it can lead to border skirmishes, it can increase rivalries, lead to more nationalism. Uh, and so creating these resilient societies uh, uh, is, is something that, that this event teaches us it's, that it's an important thing to worry about. Yeah. 
because it kind of exposes some of our vulnerabilities, I guess. Yeah, um, absolutely. So I've got one more question for you. My my students are always telling me, you know, you're so charismatic, you're so thoughtful, you're so talented. And as my dad, what what did you do to raise a son that's that's like me? <laughs> Is this a serious question? No, it's not. <laughs> so, no, uh, so so I can t- I'll, I'll say this for your class though. Is that uh, Stefan was as nice and as charismatic as a little kid as he is as an adult. Uh, you know, I remember, though, when, when lots of other kids were being pills and acting up and throwing spitballs and doing the sorts of things that boys do to get in trouble. Uh, you hung out with kids like that, but you were always actually fairly polite and respectful and, and sort of a civilized little kid. Uh, and, and adults kind of like you. And, and it wasn't because you were a, you know, the kind of the kid that sort of sucks up to adults. You were just being yourself, and, and, and it was sort of endearing. And we always, uh, every, every teacher, uh, everybody, every uh, coach that you had said, oh, Stefan's such a nice kid. Uh, so I think it's just you, you, you won the genetic lottery. So it's, it's all genes. You did, you did nothing except give me your genes. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> uh, well, I was part of it. No. Mom's genes, not mine. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, yeah. No, but I and, I and I think you had two older sisters too, and I think sisters can be pretty outspoken, and they tend to keep you honest as well. So whenever you did something stupid, I think that you, you know your sisters, almost like parents, uh, you know, would would keep me in line, kind of thing. Yeah, 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 not not like a parent, but certainly let you know, you know, what's good behavior and and respectful behavior. Uh, and I think that was part of it too. You just uh, and and you had good dogs. <laughs> yeah. I think I still do. It's a the key yeah. part of my identity. I don't know about, I I don't know about Marnie. I, 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 you got to convince me Marnie's a good dog. No, I have. Uh, my dogs are one of the uh, background images on my TV at school, and my students love it when Marnie's picture comes up. She she gets the seal of approval. Yeah, well, she looks like a like a weasel. <laughs> oh, well, I guess I'll uh, I'll end it there. I think I got plenty for the podcast. Okay. Yep. Well, I think this is great that you do this. I, I hope that uh, people, you know, while they're uh, exercising good good civic duty as uh, uh, socially distancing themselves, that they find listening to podcasts and reading and doing, you know, intellectually stimulating things are a way to pass the time. Uh, I do see a lot of people outdoors, though, as well. So yeah, uh, I'm hoping that, you know, between between learning new things and spending a little extra time outdoors, uh, that uh, people make the best of this. Now, who was it? It was Winston Churchill during the Battle of Britain uh, when when uh, Germany was having these, uh, in 1940, having the raids uh, on, on Great Britain. And the famous quote by Winston Churchill was, keep calm and carry on. Oh, yeah, you see that see that in memes? You see that on bumper stickers? Uh-huh. Yeah, so that was, that was during a bombing raid. I don't know if you realize that people were living in the subways. Because living oh, yeah. up on the surface, the bombs were landing everywhere, but the tunnels underground were safe. And I remember seeing black and white photos of cots lined up as long as the, uh, along the entire subway platform and people living down there. Wow. And it was during that horrible time that he, he coined that phrase, you know, keep calm and carry on. So I think that that applies here. You know, you know keep calm and carry on. I think that's, that's perfect advice. Um, well, thank you. Thank you for taking your time uh, to do this. I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, happy to help. And 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 uh, you know, stay healthy and 
you know, make sure that you exhibit good practices. And I think I think mom's making you a mask. <laughs> I think, yeah, she was texting me earlier. She said it's in the mail. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if she's got one small enough for Ren, though. <laughs> oh, that's all right. We'll, we'll make you do. Have to keep him, I got to keep him indoors for the time being. Yeah, he'll stay at home. All right. All Sounds right. good. Well, it's great talking to you. Yeah, good talking to you. We'll talk to you soon. Yep, bye-bye. Bye. All right, we will close the show this week with a cover of a song called The Train Song by the band Mandolin Orange. Take me down the line Or smell the smoke from the hot coals As the engine fired We could ask that engineer For one more mile and then I'd go Let the whistle well and take it in slow Well take me back to the railroad tracks And the sound inside my mind The dusty wheels and steel rails still whine could hop that 909 and go back in time some time ago Let the whistle well and take it in slow By some old lazy creek And take my car to the graveyard And dig a hole real deep We'll holler rest in peace and weep Lay track on every street Let the whistle well and give the rail my soul to keep Mr. Engineer, just one more mile and then I'd go Let the whistle well and take it in slow 